I'm Don Tapscott. And I'm Alex Tapscott. And welcome to uh, What's on Tap. What a clever title. Uh, this is now our third or fourth edition. We're developing a good following here. And it's always fun to chat with you about what's going on. Uh, for everyone listening, these are pretty much unrehearsed. Uh, so we, we're not totally sure where we're going to go, but we'll find out. So Alex, uh, biggest news around here for sure for you is that uh, your company, Nine Point Partners, has announced uh, that I guess this is the first time ever that uh, you'll make your Bitcoin ETF 100% uh, carbon neutral. Um, that seems like a real uh, game changer uh, to me and lots of people have commented uh, on it in the last couple of days. And it's certainly a good peg for us to talk about the issue of blockchain energy uh, use. So let's let's uh, step back a bit. Uh, Alex, uh, you of course will remember that in our book, Blockchain uh, Revolution, available at bookstores everywhere, new edition, um, that we talked about the challenges and potential impediments or even showstoppers to this whole thing moving forward. And the number two challenge we raised the idea that the energy use is unsustainable. And uh, we ended up saying that wasn't a showstopper, it was a implementation challenge, but it certainly is a non-trivial one. And on, on the one hand, there's a, a real case to be made that, hey, we need to reduce carbon radically in this little planet by say 90% in the next 20 years. It's just an overwhelming challenge. And already we're starting to see um, uh, hundreds of millions of people losing their water supply. And uh, as an example, you think we have a problem today with migration of populations and terrorism and uh, 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 tribal wars and so on. Um, this this is a huge issue. Um, but it, it's, and, and it is a big issue, Bitcoin's energy use for uh, a lot of investors. Uh, it's also <laughs> a pretty big axe for all of the detractors of Bitcoin to uh, grind. And, uh, you know, Bill um, Maher did a show uh, last week where he went in a big rant about blockchain and crypto. And this was his big thing, talking about how Bitcoin was using more energy than uh, Manhattan. And, uh, you know, it's, lots of countries have been compared, Belgium, Argentina, and so on. Um, so why don't we um, just step back a bit and talk about uh, Bitcoin energy use. What's the real story here? And is it as bad as the detractors make it out to be? Yeah, so Bitcoin's rapid growth has um, raised some concerns about the energy that is required to run the Bitcoin network. So just by way of background, um, the way that the Bitcoin network basically operates is that there are all these nodes connected to the network and uh, transactions are constantly happening between parties. Every so often they are batched into this thing called a block, which gets broadcast to all the nodes. And there are certain nodes called miners that use large computing power to basically validate the transactions to run the blockchain and to secure the overall network. And these miners uh, and their computers use a lot of energy to do that. And it's a necessary uh, input in order to ensure that blockchains like Bitcoin um, are secure and trustworthy. Now, the charge from people in the media that Bitcoin wastes energy 
are wrong for a couple of reasons. But the big one is that something only wastes energy if you think it performs no useful function. Um, the Bitcoin network today stores around $1 trillion of value. It serves millions of people. By some estimates in the US alone, 47 million people own Bitcoin. But it also includes many people who are unbanked, migrant workers, uh, people who use Bitcoin as a means of expressing political dissent. And it is increasingly being integrated into the financial infrastructure of the future. You see companies like PayPal and Visa and others making Bitcoin and blockchain more generally really foundational to their growth. So this is something that is useful and important and is widely held and widely used. So it's not wasting the energy. Um, the question is, does it use too much energy? Or more precisely, is the carbon footprint too great for it to scale and for it to reach its potential? And that is a much more important question. Now, the criticism that Bitcoin is a polluter is not totally accurate. Um, for various economic reasons, the miners that I just discussed do co-locate where power is abundant and oftentimes free. And increasingly, that actually means being near renewables. Um, so by one estimate from Cambridge University, around 40% of the energy that's used in Bitcoin mining is from renewables, which is a way higher percentage than basically any other industry. Other estimates peg it even higher. But the thing is, let's say it's half. Half of a very big number is still a very big number. And until the energy is 100% renewable, then Bitcoin is always going to have this stigma attached to it. So there are lots of different things that can be done to make Bitcoin more sustainable. Um, more efficient mining equipment is one thing that's made it more sustainable. Um, the big one, of course, would be improving the power mix to more renewable from fossil fuel. But there's also another important step that can be done. And that's something that our firm Nine Point has done, which is basically to offset the carbon footprint of the Bitcoin that we hold in our ETF. And this is, a I mean, what exactly is that and how does it work? Yeah, absolutely. So our Bitcoin ETF is uh, trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It has around $300 million of assets under management, which means that investors who buy our fund are getting direct exposure to Bitcoin that is held with our custodian. And the Bitcoin um, is represents a share of the total value of all the Bitcoin in the world. And it turns out that if you work with really good partners, which we are with the CarbonX and the Crypto Carbon Rating Institute, you can do a detailed analysis of the energy footprint of the Bitcoin network. You can do a detailed analysis of what the mix is between renewable and non-renewable. And then you can figure out what your proportionate share of that overall carbon footprint would be. And that you can figure out what the pricing for that carbon would be. And then you can enter the voluntary carbon offset market. So carbon credits, something people may be familiar with to, to purchase um, high quality um, certified credits that allow you to gain confidence that when you purchase them, that you are directly offsetting the exact carbon footprint of the Bitcoin that you own. So this would be the first time ever that investors have a way to get exposure to Bitcoin um, in a 100% carbon neutral uh, way, essentially. And, uh, you know, for us, I mean, it's something that we view as an opportunity, of course. Um, there are a lot of investors who 
have not yet gotten comfortable with Bitcoin, mostly for this reason, for this environmental reason. But also for us, it's really sort of a duty uh, of sorts, um, something that we think is important to do. It's the right thing to do. And uh, we hope it's a model for the for the industry as a whole. So a few questions on this. So um, for, for start for starters, and I, I'm sure there's some pretty complicated math involved here, but how do you analyze the footprint of Bitcoin? It seems like a pretty formidable challenge. Well, I would never pretend to know the full answer to that. Um, that's why, you know, as a as a business person, um, you work with partners who have um, domain expertise. And in our case, the firm that's doing the footprinting analysis for us, the Crypto Car Carbon Rating Institute, um, has actually they're the only group that have actually published in peer-reviewed journals about this subject. And they have a data analysis and a whole methodology that they use in order to arrive at the answer to that question. Um, you know, there are some inputs, obviously, that are publicly available. You can actually see uh, the hash rate, basically. So the number of um, computations required for miners to validate transactions. And from there, you can derive the uh, amount of electricity, um, figuring out the mix of that electricity between um, fossil fuel and renewable uh, gets trickier, but there are other ways that you can do that. And from there, you can arrive um, at a number and an answer where you can have a high degree of confidence that uh, it's accurate. And, um, you know, I think for us, um, it's important to just continue to stay on this because whatever the carbon footprint is of our fund today um, could be different in a month because there's a number of factors. The energy mix could move more towards renewable. Um, the hashing rate could go down. And so the overall electrical uh, electricity required could decrease. Um, the value of our funds assets could fluctuate as well. So this is something that you have to stay on top of um, constantly in order to make sure that you're doing the right job of actually matching one thing with the other. Okay, so this is not just a one-shot analysis. It's sort of a real-time thing that you're constantly adjusting. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So um, well, I should say not constantly adjust. Um, it's adjusted on a monthly basis. Yeah, okay. So um, these uh, ESG initiatives overall, uh, of which I guess this would roughly fall in the category, um, there are two complaints about them from an investor point of view. One is that these things don't perform as well, and then you don't have that problem because it's Bitcoin. Um, but the other thing is that the, it's always more costly, and that so as an investor, you have to think about, well, am I prepared to pay more uh, to get the benefit of uh, being responsible? So, um, so how are you? Uh, how are you covering the costs of doing this? Yeah, absolutely. Investors um, want to go green, but they don't want to pay anything more than they already have been. So we we've solved that problem for them. The cost of offsetting our Bitcoin, we're paying for out of our own pocket. Um, so this is a corporate expense. It's not uh, expense borne by the unit holders of the fund. Um, so for us, um, that was again an important thing to do. A because well, it's the right thing to do, but also we know that, you know, by doing this, we're providing yet another compelling reason for investors who maybe have been on the sidelines to take another hard look at the asset class. Um, and for us, we know from experience that 
lots of investors, institutions, and so forth do have these ESG mandates, environmental social governance. And it's a bit of a struggle because, you know, as um, let's say that you're running a pension fund, right, on behalf of a bunch of municipal employee retirees. Well, these are people who need to ensure that they get the benefits that they were promised as part of that pension. And you've got a fiduciary responsibility to make smart investments on their behalf. Now, I think in the long run, making investments that are sustainable are also going to prove to be to perform well. But in the short to medium run, um, having an ESG mandate can mean not investing in certain companies that could actually help the performance uh, for your um, investors. So what we're looking at here is a way to basically do both things, to provide the benefits of diversification and all the optionality that you get from owning something like Bitcoin, but in a way that is ESG compliant or at least fits an ESG mandate. And to us, that offers really the best of both worlds. Okay, so Alex, this whole discussion uh, was about the consensus mechanism proof of work, of yeah. which energy use is not a, in, in the big picture, not a problem. It's the solution. It's the way that you develop a, a, a blockchain that can achieve consensus and that, that can be secure. But we also have other consensus mechanisms, proof of stake being a big one. Now, is this is this going to be a big part of the solution going forward? Um, I think absolutely. In the, in the grand scheme of things, where a lot of blockchain innovations are occurring um, beyond Bitcoin, um, the dominant method for reaching consensus and securing the network is going to be proof of stake. But I don't think that Bitcoin is ever going to move to proof of stake, and I don't think it should go to proof of stake. Um, proof of work. And, you know, again, all that means is that sort of an adversarial relationship with all these miners competing to, you know, basically validate a block so that they can earn new Bitcoin. That process is the most secure uh, system that we've ever devised to move and store value digitally. And um, it's battle tested. And it is one of the reasons why Bitcoin is worth a trillion dollars. And it's also one of the reasons why investors like to uh, increasingly see it as a store of value analogous to gold. The idea is that it's decentralized, it takes energy to produce new ones, it's scarce, um, it is a resource that holds value like a hard currency. So for all those reasons and others, Bitcoin is never going to move from proof of work. But for lots of other kinds of applications in financial services and beyond, like in the creative industries and in art, um, you know, I do think that there is a real need for um, more um, scalable and efficient systems. Um, and proof of stake, I think, is a way to achieve that. And, you know, proof, without getting into too much detail, basically, proof, proof of stake is a system where computing power doesn't give you um, you know, control over the network or more influence over the network. It's just the stake, the thing, the amount of the native token of the network that you own gives you more power to validate those transactions. And I see that being a model that's useful for some applications and Bitcoin being one that's obviously very useful uh, for others. Okay, well, um, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer that you can buy into Bitcoin and also uh, um, help offset the 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 carb the carbon that's been, been created sort of have your cake and eat it too as it were 
Um, so um, I don't know what else you want to talk about today. We got another minutes. Well, I feel like I've been soaking up a lot of the airwaves. Um, you know, I've got a couple of questions for you. We're um, in the spring here. It's a period of of uh, rebirth, and uh, we're seeing that you know all across the economy. And um, my understanding is that the BRI things are firing on all cylinders. And I have to ask. I mean everyone's experience was different but what what was the impact for the bri from the pandemic on your business and would you say there were any sort of uh new insights um that you gleaned from the experience well for starters um it, it hurt us it was tough to be really honest um now we have four businesses you know um our syndicated research business which is our main business Companies have to pay $150,000 or $200,000, depending on their industry, to join the BRI. And, you know, anyone who's studied Psych 101, Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, kicked in. So if a tiger's chasing you, the fact that nobody loves you is not a big thing. So we were kind of selling love, I guess. Um, and everyone was just trying to deal with this tiger that was this awful, horrific uh, thing of the pandemic that not only is hurting their businesses, but it's threatening lives of people all around the world and killed a countless number of people. So um, now, of course, there was a case to be made that blockchain is a big part of the solution for pandemics, um, but initially it did hurt us. Um, that has now come back uh, um, with, with a, a happy vengeance in the sense that uh, we're on Fuego right now. We're having our best uh, quarters, uh, uh, two in a row, and uh, there's a huge interest. I don't think, um, I'd be interested in your point of view, I don't think that it's uh, it's being driven by the growth of crypto, that the growth of crypto is more a reflection of the uh, underlying interest in blockchain and all the applications and things that it can do. Our other businesses uh, did uh, well, though. Uh, we have a, an online education business, as you know, um, uh, for, for those who don't know about that, Alex and I uh, spent a lot of time <laughs> creating these uh, courses um, with our director of education, fantastic uh, woman, woman, Dr. Lisa uh, Acosta. And we created these uh, uh, eight courses in total for Coursera about blockchain in the enterprise and blockchain and financial services. This was done in partnership with INSEAD, our formal academic partner, INSEAD being one of the top business schools in the world and has been for many, many years. And uh, these things are on Fuego for sure. Uh, the registrations, um, I won't say skyrocketed, but they were way up as people just were stuck somewhere in their home and looking for ways to get themselves uh, informed. Uh, we have a book publishing business that's been doing great as well. And uh, we now have two books in the series. Uh, financial services revolution, and also the supply chain revolution, which is the first book to talk about blockchain and pandemics uh, in supply chains. And um, uh, we also hold the largest uh, conference on blockchain in the enterprise. Obviously, we had to go virtual on that, but that was a big deal too. So we had uh, 270 speakers. Uh, there were 93 sessions, and it didn't look like Zoom because uh, we rented a uh, uh, a TV studio, and um, as you know, we were sitting there for <laughs> days 
and uh, um, and uh, there are actually about eighteen cameramen and engineers, and that whole thing is is uh, is available now uh, online. It's called Blockchain Revolution uh, Global. Um, we're planning for this year to do uh, a hub and spoke model with a big physical event, November 15, uh, 16, 17 in Toronto, and then satellite events in a dozen countries around the world. So would you say that some of those initiatives that worked really well in the pandemic period um, might be with us to stay for a while? I mean, the BRG virtual event, obviously we all want to get together in person again. Um, but the next time that we host that event, I can see some sort of a hybrid um, to improve and increase our reach um, globally. Which is a sensible thing to do. And it's sort of the point that I've been making for a year now, is that the pandemic is speeding up sensible things to do, uh, having to do with the digital age by years or even decades in some cases shopping online we're entertaining ourselves online we're learning online we're working and collaborating we're doing stuff like this and um i i think that sure air travel will come back but i don't think it's going to come back the way that it was always and mm. that uh, previously and that you know by holding these uh, uh this sort of hub and model these satellite events i think that we're, we're going to be engaging many thousands of people that we weren't able to before uh, the other thing of course is that we had to uh oh by the way <laughs> i don't know if you know this alex we we were just awarded the biz buzz award for our uh, blockchain uh, enterprise blockchain awards ceremony we they have like uh, 10 categories and we won in the best awards ceremony. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> terrific. And uh, thanks. A shout out to Art Media who provided the hologram uh, technology. By the way, Heart, Art Media just did a deal with uh, WeWork to holograms into, I think it's a thousand WeWork centers all around the world. Amazing. That's a company. Yeah, they've been a great partner for sure. Yeah. Uh, hey, speaking of speaking of virtual events um you're speaking at a virtual event today is it um the big ffcon 21 future yeah, yeah. financial services that is pretty funny i mean honestly you should be doing this but it's okay i'll take it pretty well uh, but um yeah the topic is i'm giving the closing keynote to this event and they've publicized the heck out of it it looks like they've got a lot of people coming but it's um I'm going to be talking about blockchain and the transformation of financial services going around the golden eight wheel, uh, the, the eight things that we, um, the, the eight fundamental functions of the financial services industry that we described in blockchain uh, revolution, that this whole industry is kind of like a Rube Goldberg machine, you know, one of these super complicated <laughs> things that does something pretty simple like crack an egg or open a door but when you you boil it right down the industry does eight um pretty simple things in fact i'm going to be talking about a ninth one now i'll be stealing from your recent tome uh where is this thing uh financial services revolution and um uh so thank you for the uh editorial license or the uh the uh, intellectual property uh theft which i'll be performing uh tonight but um, the uh, the golden nine, I mean, that's what you, the way you describe it. Why don't we end with you uh, 
just filling us in on that and, and <coughs> also serve the function helping remind me for my speech tonight too oh sure well it's so interesting i mean we we basically identified these nine different things that the industry does i mean it started with eight then we added one more which maybe tells you that the list isn't always exhaustive but um something or sorry go creep list creep list creep yeah exactly yeah i mean you know every single thing that the financial industry does we think can be impacted by blockchain so we tried to take this industry that's sort of complicated and hard to understand from an outsider's view and break it down into its constituent parts um and it turns out it does basically nine things you know um it provides uh infra you know tools and infrastructure to move money and value to store money and value to access credit to fund uh, investments to exchange and trade financial assets to insure against risk, to analyze data, to organize financial information into um, understandable ways, you know, accounting and the like. Um, and uh, all of those different functions of the financial services industry can be disrupted by blockchain. We basically described a few ways that that could happen in uh, blockchain revolution, and I expanded on that significantly in financial services revolution. And before the word DeFi had entered the lexicon, we were talking about uh, decentralizing insurance and capital markets and um, you know the way in which we uh, organize um, and audit financial information through triple entry bookkeeping, all of these things that um, you know, at the time were really in their infancy and had not yet been um, organized into a taxonomy. We tried to do that early on. And, you know, I got to be honest with you, like looking back a few years removed from that first version that appeared in blockchain revolution, I think we did okay. I really do. Like, I, <laughs> I, I do think that we anticipated a lot of this stuff. You know, in fact, I gave a TEDx talk in San Francisco in the fall of 2016, which is five years ago, almost um, four and a half years ago, where I talked about all of these different models. Um, and so it's really gratifying when you write these things and you kind of go out on a limb and people, half the people who hear you think you're nuts uh, to find out years later that you, you've correctly anticipated at least a little bit of it. Um, and I think in our case, we did a bit better than that. It's super gratifying. So um if you want to understand more about all that stuff financial services revolution it's pretty bleeding edge um it's got a great description of DeFi and tokens and everything else so uh would definitely check it out all right our time's up everybody thanks for joining us uh for this week's what's on tap we'll see you next week uh this is available on any podcast platform all the big ones and uh, also on youtube if you want to uh, look at our uh, uh, shining faces. Anyway, uh, Alex, thanks, and we'll check in next week. Thanks. Sounds good.